Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 148. Are you interested in deploying your Python project everywhere? This week on the show, Russell Keith McGee, founder and maintainer of the Beware Project, returns. Russell shares recent updates to Briefcase, a tool that converts a Python application into native installers on macOS, Windows, Linux, and mobile devices. We cover how Anaconda hired him last year to work full-time on the Beware project. He shares how this has helped him focus his efforts and move the project forward. We also discuss his recent talk at DjangoCon US 2022, titled How to Turn Your Website into an App and Why Maybe You Shouldn't. Russell details the problems of converting from the web onto a mobile platform. We also contrast WebAssembly system interface, WASI, to the tools his team works on. This episode is brought to you by Influx Data. The Influx DB time series platform empowers developers and organizations to build real-time IoT, analytics, and cloud applications with timestamped data. Learn more at influxdata.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Russell, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I had to go back into my archive and and dig it out, but you were on episode 22. It was really fantastic talking to you early on in in the show. And I feel there's been a lot going on, not only in the Python community and things happening there, but with Beware itself. And maybe we could talk a little bit about how the Beware project is going. Absolutely. It has been an eventful couple of years in every conceivable sense of the word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We talked a little bit about kind of open source funding, and it sounds like maybe that situation's changed a little bit, even more recent period, right? Uh, yes. No, my, uh, well, it's uh, just shy of a year, Beware had a, uh, a very big change in terms of its funding is a little bit of a weird way of putting it, but like the way the way in which the, the sausage gets made, I guess. Okay. So a little, uh, sort of start of March last year, I accepted a full-time position to work at Anaconda. It's a company behind what well, does it puts a lot of work into the Conda package manager and Anaconda navigator and that suite of commercially available tools. Anaconda has an open source division whose mandate is do the open source things, make this ecosystem healthy, do do the things that are needed in scientific Python and whatever else, you know, numerical Python and whatnot to make this ecosystem healthy. They took a round of funding, uh, I think a year, in, like start of 2020, one, I think. Don't quote me on that one. But essentially, on the basis of we need to, we want to grow, we want to expand, we think this is a huge market that is available and Anaconda wants to be the company of of Python in open source, Python in data science. And part of that is a couple of strategic long plays in terms of ensuring 
the long-term health of the Python ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, in some regards, this is kind of uh, Peter Wang and 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 the sort of the the C-suite at Anaconda taking the bait of what I teased at my uh, the keynote that I gave at PyCon US in 2019, that if we don't care about the platforms where people are using computers, then Python as a language is going to sunset because people aren't using desktop machines anymore. So having Python available on your phone, having Python available on tablets, having Python available in the web browser, these are the emerging platforms where things are happening. And one way or the other, we need to have a Python story. Yeah. And so to that end, Anaconda has put resources into Beware as a, primarily because of the sort of the web, sorry, sorry primarily because of the, uh, the mobile device, getting on iPhone, getting on Android and so on. They are also independently putting a lot of work into PyScript, which is you know, the sort of the WebAssembly and making, making WebAssembly a user accessible layer that can be, um, can be played with there. And so, yeah, that's, essentially what the big change that's happened for Beware. Beware is still an open source project. It is still independent. I work full-time at Anaconda. I work on Beware full-time. I do have a manager who asks what I'm doing on a weekly basis. But essentially, the mandate was very, very clear that Beware is not an Anaconda product. Okay. Beware is just something that Anaconda is funding because we think it is important or we think it is a, it is a valuable play of, and it opens up a bunch of doors let down the down the down the road for anaconda as a company like anaconda's business is selling to the fortune 500 end of town primarily large commercial support contracts around python the more people that use python the more people that need commercial support contracts Um, they've also got a bunch of things yeah and so like and so it's like if all of a sudden the company that's currently just got a a bunch of data wonks in the back room doing you know data science mining of of whatever you know whatever data's coming in all of a sudden are building ios apps and android apps as well yeah. then that's another whole bunch of people that need site licenses for anaconda so it's in their interest and as a benefit it just happens to be good for the entire python ecosystem as well yeah very much a float all boats kind of thing exactly and like it's not just the big end of town as well like anaconda has we, we they want data science for everyone they want everyone to be able to do computing they want everyone to be able to do analyze their data process their data build use their computers as devices that can be you know empower them to to change the world the way that they want to change it and part of that is being on the devices where people are actually using their computer or actually doing their computing so yeah definitely and i mean i guess we could talk briefly about beware and and briefcase though a lot of people can reference episode 22 because mm-hmm. we went really into detail there but you know the goal is kind of getting python on all these end user devices and sort of a, a deployment tool in a way I, I don't know if you have your your quickest uh, elevator pitch of it yeah and like deployment tool is probably the best way of putting it it gets into some interesting territory in terms of nomenclature about you know, is it deployment is it packaging is it delivery like yeah have, there isn't a good consensus on what that word is but whatever it is you have something that you want to deliver as an app, something that the end user can use, and most importantly, that the end user doesn't have to care that it's written in Python. Right. So, you know, you use your, you know, your social media app, you use your photo sharing app, you use your email app, and you do not care that it's written in whatever language it happens to be written in. 
if you are using if you are doing using Python to write that app, Briefcase is a tool that will let you take the code that you have written and deliver it to an end user so that they can run it without having to teach them what a virtual environment is and teach them how to install a Python interpreter and teach them how to set up their Python path and how to pull down a package from PyPI and all that kind of stuff. It's just a delivered right. Python install that just works. And like the extension of that is then and lets you build user interfaces that are native using the API. And that's sort of where Toga as a, uh, as a user interface toolkit kicks in as well. Yeah, we talked quite a bit about Toga and how that's such a crucial kind of element and tying in, you know, you were talking about trying to get, you know, support and help to, to make sure that you can get that graphical user interface across all these platforms and how it required a lot of internal support with your team trying to like figure out, okay, well, how do we do this inside of Windows and what are the different ways to kind of access those layers to to create the buttons and create the, yeah. the different types of uh, interfaces that you need? Yeah, and that task has not gotten any smaller with time, I can assure you. <laughs> and, yeah, we, yeah. and we are still we are still looking for assistance. The we are currently in the process of like we've spent most of the last year solidifying the briefcase base and making sure that running Python everywhere is actually a viable proposition. And that's meant a lot of uh, you know, we needed to add support for M1 devices oh, yeah. on everything like that's a big transition that's happened since we talked <laughs> that's happened yeah yeah we we needed to improve a bunch of the packaging on linux because the like binary compatibility between between different linux distributions is a bit of a headache and it's still one we're kind of wrestling with because there are some it's it's a bit of a nightmare just generally but making getting an application so that a linux user can run it is a non-trivial proposition we need to improve packaging on windows because you know windows apps there are conventions about the way things are done. We needed to improve the way those are packaged. We needed to get binary modules working on uh, iOS. So things like NumPy contain a compiled component. How do you get that onto a phone so that an end user can actually use NumPy on their phone? Still a work in progress. There's still a lot of stuff to be done there. Right. But you know, we've made huge inroads over the last year in terms of improving that. And we've also massively improved our Android story as well. Again, and the reason all this is possible is because we, I have been working on this full time for a year. And since uh, July of last year, Anaconda has also been uh, paying for another guy, Malcolm Smith. Awesome. To, to work on as well. So we're a team of two. Maybe it might be a large, slightly larger team later this year. We're not sure. But, you know, when you've got two people working full time at a project, turns out you can make a lot of progress in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Certainly a lot more than I was making between 8 a.m. and 12 a.m. or 12, 12 midday on uh, on a Saturday trying to you know, stay on top of tickets. Yeah. Hey, we were talking about that before, how you were only able to kind of, you know, invest when you could. It wasn't um, something. Yeah. That you were able to invest in full time at, at, you know, at two and a half years ago. So that's great. Yeah. And yeah. And, and like, the 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 flexibility to sit down and say i'm going to spend the next three weeks trying to work out how to get a build system that can support both mac on x86 mac on m1 iphone simulator on x86 iphones uh, iphone on um all these platforms inside the same ecosystem like yeah you could do it over weekends but just the spooling up of context every saturday for <laughs> yeah no. six months that it takes is you know uh, a bit of a headache anyway so that's yeah the context switching exactly. and, and all that stuff exactly yeah. and so that's that's kind of <laughs> been the last year we still have some work to go but like that's been the last year the last couple of months 
of that year have been uh, back on the toga situation, mostly trying to get the testing situation sorted out because one of the biggest gaps in toga has always been, yeah, okay, you can build apps with it, but how do you prove that the toolkit is not regressing over time? So it's, it's trivially easy to make a change in one layer that makes you know, macOS widgets have a background color the way you expect and accidentally break the way that text labels work on GTK because you haven't got an automated test suite that validates the visual aspects of what is going on. And so that's what we're currently in the process of building that up is you know, a, a, a set of automated tests to make sure that the visual aspects of Toga remain consistent over time. We can validate they remain consistent over time and in the process go through and kind of audit all the widgets to make sure that the API makes sense, that the API is fully tested, like programmatically makes sense, and that we have, we've got sort of consistent naming of properties everywhere and, and all the sort of things that drift when you're only working on it, you know, four hours on a Saturday morning when you've got the got some spare spare energy. Yeah. So you were talking a little bit about some deeper layer kind of stuff, talking about things like with data science, the C layer almost of like these kind of deeper layers and making sure that that works across into this platform. And I, I wondered about that. Like I've been talking to a handful of developers that are crossing into this sort of rustification of some of the Python stuff. And I wonder if that is a is a similar hurdle or uh, an easier hurdle or or if you've had to uh, address any of that in, in some of the things you're working on? Uh, yes, yes, I have. And it is all commingled. Um, okay. It is a... It is weird in that it is a situation where it is slowly getting better, but legacy is the thing that kicks you every time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and essentially this all comes down to kind of PEP 517 packaging type issues. Okay. Go back two, three years, setup tools is kind of where everything was. Setup tools worked and let you build binary packages, but had some interesting quirks and like 20 years of rusted on legacy and, and weirdness that's kind of baked into that. PEP 5.17 has been fantastic in that it now specifies an interface by which you build your package. The downside is that now you need to support every possible way of building a package. And so, you know, NumPy now has a Meson backend. Okay, so now we know now you now need to teach Meson how to do cross-platform mm. and multiply that by every other build backend that's currently being maintained and every other, you know, build build system that's being maintained. And yeah, you get to something like Rust. Okay, you want this Rust package to build on iOS. That means I've got to work out how to drive a Rust compiler to spit out iOS content. And all solvable problems, like at the end of the day, iOS is a Unix as long as you squint at it enough. <laughs> so it can be done. You've just got to work out how to drive it. And a lot of the time, like the biggest hit, hiccup, the biggest hurdle that we consistently hit is that the Python ecosystem broadly has an expectation that the platform for on, on which you run PIP is the platform where you'll be using the code. Mm, okay. And that is true almost everywhere except mobile devices because you are building you, you are on macOS building for iOS and you can't link the macOS libraries or use the macOS compiler to get to iOS it's actually gotten marginally worse as a result of the M1 transition because previously you had an x86 laptop and an M1 or an, an arm iPhone yeah you would compile on your laptop 
push the binary and it would say, nope, sorry, can't do it. It's an x86 binary. And you go, oh, crap, I've forgotten. I've linked in the wrong thing here. But now you've got an M1 laptop. It's the same CPU architecture. And it's very, very easy to fall into a place where you think it's working, but you push it to device and it doesn't. And even though the binary is the same architecture, it's not compatible at an ABI level because you've linked the macOS libraries and not the iOS libraries and variations of that kind of set of problem. Um, so yeah, it is, there is, it's complicated. There's essentially is where, what it comes down to. Build systems are complicated. Hey, who would have thought? And (laughs) it, yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done there. The, Upside is that there's one thing that has changed, or sorry, one slash two things that have changed recently that have made this a lot easier. PET 517 is kind of part of that. The second is the introduction of WASM as an officially supported target inside CPython. Because as a part of doing that, CPython has had to kind of, we now has to like, gen, like, in an official capacity, has to reckon with this because you can't run a C compiler in the browser. Well, I say that. You probably could, but you shouldn't run a C compiler in the browser. (laughs) It's not suggested. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I hesitate to say it can't be done because you can do some weird stuff with with WASM, but the, the average user is going to be on their Mac laptop building a WASM binary, which they ship to the browser. And that is the same problem that iOS has, just with a different ABI target and a different set of libraries you need to link against. So... Like it is a problem that is now not just my problem. It is a problem that the broader WASM community has and a problem that CPython now actually has a stake in because WASM is an official target. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting kind of change. I've had lots of these conversations touching on WASM. Two years ago, it was like, because oh, it's so exciting, it's going to be, you know, change things and then I talked to Brett Cannon about the idea of what's the core of Python, what, how can we package Python in a way that, mm. you know, it could fit on not only smaller devices, but also potentially inside the browser. And now it's very much here in, in these initial states. And the introduction of PyScript at, at PyCon was very, very interesting. And I kind of held off on talking about it a whole lot on the show because I was like, well let's wait and see and kind of see what's happening with it. And so I'm, I'm very intrigued by it and to see how people are going to use it and w- what's going to happen with it. And then also like what you're saying is like the, the kind of the tooling and, and preparing stuff for it is, is really intriguing to me. Yeah. I, I wonder, it sounds like that beware had a, a version as a deliverable briefcase that was for the web previously, or is it was not. Uh, so it was so if you if you cast back I, I gave a demo at PyCon Australia 2017 I want to say that did demonstrate deploying to the browser so it you know it has historically worked and then it kind of okay. stopped working and I never really got back to fixing it okay. at that time I we weren't using like Wasm like existed but it wasn't really a a mainstream thing yet. And that was based around a tool called uh, Batavia, which was essentially taking Python, it was, it was a Python, C Python bytecode interpreter hmm. written in JavaScript. Okay. 
so you would take your PYC file that you had on your local machine and you would push that to the browser and the browser would interpret that PYC the same way that it would have if it was on the desktop. And that worked well enough. Like in terms of a proof of concept, it was it was quite effective. The downside is that it gives you CPython the language, but none of the standard library. Uh. And so you need to then, like even just, you need to re-implement all the operations you can do on integer, you need to re-implement in JavaScript. And JavaScript doesn't have an integer type, so you've it's complicated. And so yeah. <laughs> what ended up happening is we we ended up with a whole bunch of JavaScript tooling that just ended up in you know all the, the, the packaging hell that large JavaScript projects end up with. And what started as like 10 kilobytes of compressed JavaScript all of a sudden became 10 megabytes of compressed JavaScript and just really wasn't viable like as an approach it like it worked but it was a pain to maintain and it wasn't like obvious that it was going to be a good way forward yeah so i kind of put that on hold and that kind of also coincided with a big rework we were doing with toga at the time and like the web bit just didn't kind of make the transition to the refactor um, that I was working on at the time with the expectation that like WASM really is kind of the answer here, but WASM's not quite ready yet. Let's just hold off, focus on the platforms we know work and we'll come back to WASM when it's ready. As you, as you mentioned, Peter gave the presentation, gave the PyCon uh, keynote and announced PyScript last year. And that kind of opened up the door all of a sudden. And uh, you know, Peter's, CEO of Anaconda and I'm at Anaconda. So I figured once that announced, like I, I had some pre prior warning that announcement was coming. Yeah. And so I figured, okay, well, let's just proof of concept. Can we get the web backend working again? And yeah, like give me, I took it took about a week, but managed to get a Toga backend for web back and working again. And then later in the year, sort of around October, just before DjangoCon US, I sat down and said, okay, well, can we get briefcase deploying to a website? So you just sort of say, you know, here's, here's my app. My app will deploy to a Mac OS app and it'll deploy to an iPhone. Can I say briefcase deploy to web and get a website? And yeah, well, again, about another week and we had a working proof of concept where you could take, you know, your Hello World demonstrator, Fahrenheit Celsius converter, spit out a single page web app that loads PyScript. So it uses all the stuff that Anaconda has been, uh, has developed in the, in the PyScript uh, team to get a working Python interpreter in the browser, package up your app's code uh, and your app's dependencies and push those into the browser as well. And then loads them and, and runs them and then does essentially a single page app, but it's a single page app that you've written entirely in Python rather than writing it in JavaScript or in you know, uh, React or you know, variations thereof. Yeah, yeah. Developers love the InfluxDB time series platform because it handles large time series data sets and provides low latency SQL queries, which helps them build real-time applications and provides insights that they otherwise miss. InfluxDB Cloud is a performant, elastic, serverless time series platform that can ingest billions of data points such as metrics, events, and traces, in real time with unbounded cardinality, and store and analyze and act on that data, all in a single database. Check it out and start for free at influxdata.com. That's I-N-F-L-U-X-D-A-T-A dot com. I'm guessing that's about the time that you 
did your talk at Django Con US 2022. The talk is up on YouTube uh, titled How to Turn Your Website into an App. And I like the subtitle, Why Maybe You Shouldn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, you spent quite a bit of time talking about, you know, this is a an audience of Django developers. And so they're, you know, mostly comfortable with the idea of creating websites and deploying them and using the tools of Python, you know, to, to create these websites. And maybe they know some front ends and so forth. And I think the core idea was that you wanted to you get approached very often by clients saying, you know, okay, great, you may be a website, but hey, can't we have an app also? <laughs> and I, I like the the thing about pushing back on a client and I wonder about like your experiences with that if you've had that. Uh, so I haven't done a huge, a huge amount of like in client your classical web developer type experience. Like my my life has been very much startups and app uh, app platforms. Okay. That said, I have built I have built mobile apps. If I cast my mind way back, I was I was on the team that developed the very first app for MySpace. So you're definitely showing my age there. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So. Like there are legitimate reasons to build apps, but just common everyday experience, there are a lot of apps that really shouldn't exist. And it kind of shows in the user experience that they put up. Like they put, you can tell this is a website that you turned into an app. Like almost every airline frequent flyer management program is a website that's being turned into an app. And my God, I wish they would just stop because they've managed to make these, these apps utterly unusable because they are they have none of the benefits of being a website and none of the benefits of being an app other than and they've got all the worst aspects of both of them like they're not internally linkable and the usability is awful yeah so i think of so many restaurants that are that way you know that's a common one for yeah, me yeah exactly like, exactly <laughs> yeah and so you know i kind of the 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 there's the common refrain the common sort of pushback of you know this this meeting should have been an email this, like as as professionals working in this space, we should be pushing back in the same sort of way. You know, this this app should have been a website, right? Because there are a lot of places where a website is actually the right answer. Now, if you've got documents that you want to share with people, you've got rapidly updating information, you've got information that needs to be deep linked. A website is the right place for that. Yeah. And pushing back against clients to say, okay, yeah, you think you need an app? Why do you think you need an app? An app won't actually like make money fall out of the sky it's a means to an end how do you best serve your users and teach them the best way to serve their users that said sometimes you do need an app and like this is a like essentially the origin story of uh, of beware in a certain sense i was building a startup it was a web-based startup it was doing uh, back office management for plumbers electricians that sort of thing and it was great for the back office but we needed data capture in the field the data capture in the field kind of needed to be an app because you needed geolocation and you needed photo you know, tight integration with photos and we needed all these things that the that apps do really well you can sometimes do with a web page but don't behave anywhere near as well in particular sort of the maintaining context like leaving the page and coming back and knowing that you're going to be in exactly the same place is not something that web pages do great can be done but it's like complicated and it, like Seven years ago, it was absolutely complicated. Yeah, yeah. And so I ended up. I needed. I needed a website. I had a website. The website was great. I needed an app, and we ended up using uh, Cordova or Phonegap 
to build it. And I hated every second of working on that thing because it was this weird JavaScript hybrid kind of pretending it was an app, except that it really wasn't. And you got just like I said, all of the all of the downsides of an app and all of the downsides of a web app and none of the benefits of either. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Success. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it turned into can I how how hard would it be to do this in Python? And you know, seven years less seven, eight years later, here we are. Yeah. Turns out it was moderately difficult. Who would have thought? <laughs> but we're now getting to a place where you could start to think about building that app in iOS and actually have a legitimate application written in Python, sharing business logic with your app, sharing business logic with your backend, because you know, if you've got backend in Django and a frontend written in, in Beware, you can use the same you know, validation logic or you know, client API access logic or whatever, um, but you actually have a native application at the end of the day sitting in your hand. Yeah. You talked about this ability to access the things that are fantastic about a phone in in your hand the the camera the gps the it literally being a phone <laughs> yeah you know um, maybe entering information from uh contacts or something like that and usually it's a, a, a big cascade of you know permission asking and so forth but what i'm wondering about is you've got some tools inside of the tool you know the tooling that you created in beware i forget the name of it that can try to access some of those devices? Is that right? Yeah, so, the, the, so bridging libraries, and it varies from platform to platform. So on uh, on iOS, we use a library called Rubicon, and same on macOS, we use a library called Rubicon, yeah. which is uh, essentially exposes Objective-C as sort of the native language that's on device in Python. So you say, okay, I've got an Objective-C class that is a, a you know, WK WebKit, which is the, the widget that is a web browser. Well, I can say, okay, by the, uh, Python... Objective-C has this class called WK WebKit. Let me create an instance of that. And you wrap it, and then you treat it as if it's a Python class. But every attribute access, every method invocation gets trans, uh, trans, uh, sort of converted behind the scenes into the calls that make it an Objective-C call. The thing that's interesting about Objective-C in particular is that it is a message-passing language. So you have objects that you pass messages to. And the messages are entirely determined at runtime, not at compile time. Mm. They're validated at compile time, but you can pass any message to any object. And the message passing API is itself written in C. So you can access it through Python using FFI or using C types. So you can wrap all of the underlying runtimes methods in Python and then use Python's uh, you know, meta magic around getatra and setatra and dundercall and all those kind of things to make a Python object invoke Objective-C runtime APIs when you interact with the Python object as if it was a Python object. Hmm. Wow, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely some black magic, but it's, it is kind of cool when you look at it because as an end user, you never know that you're writing Objective-C. You have to look at the Mac APIs and the iOS APIs and read Objective-C to know what calls are legal, right. but all the code is actually in Python, just passing in keyword like named keyword arguments, which then get converted into the arguments that get passed a message a mess for message passing. And yeah, there are headaches and memory management issues and things you have to deal with. But from an end user's perspective, you are only ever writing Python. The actual implementation is also pure Python. There's not a, a line of compiled C in the entire iOS or MacOS stack, or other than the sort of C Python part. 
And any native API, including any API that comes from like a third-party library that you want to access, is accessible to you as a user. So, you know, okay, there is an accessibility, like there's a, uh, you know, acceleration API. Right. Don't know what it's called off the top of my head, but it exposes an Objective-C class. You can get that class, you can wrap it in Python, and you can invoke it however you need to go. You need to implement an interface and pass that object in as an argument so it can get callbacks as notifications. You can do that. You just use the native classes as if they were native. That's essentially how Toga then works, because all Toga is doing is wrapping the native UI classes that iOS and macOS provide and wrapping it in a layer that makes it a little bit more Pythonic and lets you share the same API behind between the macOS and the Windows and the and the GTK and the iOS implementations. So all the on button press and scroll and yeah, exactly. all I, these kind uh, of interactions for the touch interface. Yeah, so Toga calls it on uh, on on press. It's on, it's a click notification on macOS, and it's a press notification on iOS, and it's a button click on Android, and it's like you know, whatever else happens to be called wherever it's called. Yeah, we can sort of do that abstraction layer, talk to whatever the native API happens to be, and then on Android, it's a, it's a very similar story. There's an abstraction layer. Uh, we use we use a thing called uh, Chakapai. It's one of the the benefits of having Malcolm on the team is that he's been maintaining this as a sort of commercial toolkit for a long time as part of coming on board with uh, with Anaconda. He's open sourced that entire set of tools. And so we now have this sort of battle-tested collection of Android integration and Java integration. So you can do essentially exactly the same thing with Java classes. We had a version of it with, with Rubicon uh, Java, which Chakapai uh, just turns out to be a lot better that's great. Like, it's it's dug into a lot more of the weeds, essentially. And so you say the same thing is true. Yeah, I was wondering about the 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 type of background of you, you know, working with PhoneGap or or maybe other tools to kind of learn how those interactions and and communications work. Like where did where did you get the experience to kind of learn it? Were you seeing it in other implementations of this type of thing where you're translating from Python into, you know, Objective-C or, or Swift or what have you. Was that a background that you, you kind of found in another language or another tool? Uh, no. So, like, uh, it's, well, uh, part of it is being <laughs> years old and having worked in the industry for far too long and and having you know, lived through a world where C was the language where you had to do everything. Okay. So my, I learned to program originally in BASIC and C was my second language in, like, 1980 eight or thereabouts and over time you kind of pick up little bits of this so like i learned about c types at, at or ffi uh you know at some point along the way and like i've had enough commercial engagements dealing with uh, a lot of what i've done for a living has been integ- system integration like getting two systems yeah. that aren't meant to talk together and working out how to get them to talk together uh, 20-something years ago, the state of the art was a, was a library called Swig, and Swig still exists and is still around. And it uses, at some level, some of the same sets of tricks, uh, sort of wrapping, wrapping APIs, working out how to wrap one language in another language and build bindings that you can talk between them. Interestingly, one of the, the thing that actually got me, st- like the bit that got me from, hey, wouldn't this be nice, to hey, is this possible, is actually looking at the sources for Pygame, because Pygame does this. Yeah, with... Well, I'm trying to the language that's underneath it for a lot of the graphical stuff. Well, it's Python and it's talking to native system APIs. So it's doing, like, it's got a version of what Rubicon is doing just kind of through PyObjective-C, which is kind of the, 
I hesitate to say officially Apple supported, but it's the one that sort of seems to be it, it, it's maintained by the same person who does a lot of the, the, the C Python macOS stuff. Okay. And is a lot richer in terms of the things that it does for macOS, but it doesn't have any support for iOS. And it's also a lot larger as a library because it carries over a lot of, uh, like, it gives you every class that is officially published. And so that's a lot of weight to carry if, if rather than just sort of doing it dynamic or doing it uh, like on a, on a per object registration. Uses some of the macOS resources to get bits of metadata that Rubicon kind of assumes you need to manually program. But it, it is doing essentially the same thing. It is Here is an abstraction layer that lets you put a sprite on the screen. The abstraction layer is implemented on macOS by making these calls to Objective-C and these calls to GTK and these calls to uh, the Win32 API and so on. Okay. And so it was kind of looking, having a bit of a look at how Pygain did what it did and then abstracting it out into something a little bit more generic that was pure Python rather than having a compiled component using C types and uh, like some other little quirks along the way. But reading other people's code, doing similar things to kind of get inspired about what crazy thing you can do next is a lot of where that sort of comes from. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if we talked about this before, but like, is that a a potential avenue if someone wanted to, you know, make a maybe not a high-end performance video game on iOS, could they create something in Pygame and, and package it through through Briefcase? Uh, so at present, Pygame isn't supported on iOS. Okay. However, there's f- not any fundamental reason that it couldn't be. Okay. And like, ultimately, a Briefcase, like, Beware as a stack is very deliberately separated into layers. There is the support layer that gets Python on the device at all as a, you know, an iOS library. And then there is Rubicon that lets you talk to the iOS runtime. And then there is Briefcase that gets those tools onto the physical device. And Beware then has Toga to use the UI libraries to build, uh, you know, uh, buttons and sliders and Fortune 500 app type thing. Right. But there's no fundamental reason that you couldn't package any other toolkit to do the same thing, including Pygame. The catch is you've just got to write that iOS backend. You've got to, you've got to do the conversion into what are the iOS uh, sprite blitting libraries and how are we going to interpret keyboard inputs on, a, on an iPhone and, and resolve those problems. So it is at this point, uh, without you know, it's it's Pygain's problem, not not Beware's problem. Essentially, at this point, like the the tools are there, right. you could do it if someone was motivated to do it. And you know, at some point, you know, I I might take the bait and like put something together to kind of prove it can be done. And it is complicated, but not complex. Like there is a lot to be mm-hmm. done. I don't want to under undersell it. There is a lot that needs to be done, but it is all doable. It is just a matter of someone cranking the wheel and making the you know making the sausage come out yeah you talked about that in our last conversation about windows was one of the things you were working on toga pretty hard at the time and you were like it's not this super complex thing it just has lots of components yeah (laughs) and you know you're just kind of repeating yourself to like okay well how do i attach it to this and once you learn how to attach one you're kind of like learning the like you said the the process of cranking through all of it exactly and like a lot of it is working out 
where does Windows store its documentation for WinForms? What are its conventions for name? Like when when I when I need to know how do I attach to a button click? Do they call that an action? Do they call that an interaction? Do they call that a you know what what is that? Is it a signal? Is it a callback? What is that language? Okay. Where do they put that documentation? What do they call it? And then how do I interact with it? You know, once you've solved that for like once you've got button sorted out, yeah, and you understand how button works, the rest of the toolkit is basically just there for you, and it's an implementation. Like it's a here is a to do list of things to do. It's not a technical issue of can I can this be done at all? There are like it's not necessarily quite that simple. There are things like the WinForms implementation of Tree doesn't have natively a concept of multiple columns of content, whereas on GTK and MacOS it does. So you then need to work out, like, how am I going to render a tree in WinForms? Can I can I hack together something that looks like multiple columns, or do I need to make a compromise and say that Tree only ever has one column? Or, you know, how do I build a complex widget out of a series of other widgets? How do I build a multi-column tree using the WinForms API? And at that point, you you then essentially are becoming a WinForms programmer. Yeah. You're just coming at it with a very specific set of requirements. And, yeah, okay, yeah, you just go, you, you go pick up a how to program WinForms tutorial and work your way through it. And the same is true of GTK and iOS and Android and every other platform. It's just you, <laughs> you, you then get familiar with the APIs on that platform and how that, that, that platform structures things and then work out, the you know, draw the rest of the owl for one of... <laughs> yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. If you've worked with object-oriented programming in Python, you may have wondered how to solve a common issue. How can you modify the internal implementation of a class without changing the public API? Well, this course digs into that answer and much more. It's titled Managing Attributes with Python's Property. It's based on a real Python tutorial by Leodonis Pozo Ramos. And in the video course, Darren Jones shows you how to create managed attributes or properties in your classes how to perform lazy attribute evaluation and provide computed attributes, how to avoid setter and getter methods to make your classes more Pythonic, how to create read-only, read-write, and write-only properties, and how to create consistent and backwards-compatible APIs for your classes. Properties are arguably the most popular way to create managed attributes quickly and in the most Pythonic style. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com. I thought about kind of going back to the web as a potential target. Yep. And this. I keep seeing mentions of WASI or W-A-S-I and versus WASM and this sort of like crossover point there. And I feel like this conversation kind of touches on that a little bit. And I don't know if that's a concern that you're thinking about at all with, you know, integrating that. And I also kind of, I'm guessing it has to do a lot with like the, the concept of a lot of websites. They don't, they're 
sort of a sandbox that they're designed to be interacted with in this one realm. And if you want it to actually integrate into the hardware of the device, then it gets to this really interesting set of questions and problems. Yeah, and like WASI is an interesting case. And in some regards, it's kind of aiming at the same target as what Beware is doing, but coming at it from a different angle. And and I'm sort of aware of it. Okay. And strategically ignoring it because I only have so many hours in the day. <laughs> sure. Is it stand for so, Web Assembly System Integration system or Interface? interface or? Uh, something like okay. that. Yeah, I, I will absolutely stay correct. It's one of those ones where I know the acronym, but I keep forgetting what it stands for. Sure. So the, the idea there is that instead of instead of trying to get a Python interpreter to run on every platform and then moving your Python there, you get a WASI interpreter on every platform and get Python to run in WASI. Okay. And then, at least in principle, the binaries are cross-platform then because they're all just JavaScript, WASM JavaScript, but they're all just JavaScript running in a JavaScript virtual machine. And so your your binaries are then cross-platform, kind of, kind of what Java was promising to be 25 years ago, where you would have write once, run everywhere, except that now you actually do get to run, run it everywhere rather than, you know, it's a, it's a different runtime, but it's a runtime everyone actually has now because it's JavaScript rather than Java and trying to convince people to you know, swallow that elephant in one sitting. And you can target any language at WASI because it's a binary format. Like it's a, it's a, an LLVM Clang targeted binary platform. So your C code can run in WASI and that makes it a lot more portable because any existing library can be compiled to LLVM, which means it can be compiled to WASM. You then just hit this system layer of, okay, well, now I need access to a network stack. Or files. Or, or files or anything. Yeah, How do I get access to the system outside of this sandbox? And okay. like that is the set of problems that that ecosystem is now challenged, now, now focusing on and trying to work out. In some regards, it's, it's a bit like kind of, it's a bit like Node in, in some regards, that you know, the idea of Node was, well, we've got this web browser and every web browser has JavaScript by definition, right. and we have to build all this complex front-end logic for the web browser, so can't we use that front-end web logic on the server as well? Let's write Node, which lets us write our server in JavaScript and sort out the little bits that we need to actually get us a server on the server side, like an actual HTTP server, and then share the logic between front-end and back-end. This is the same idea, except that we're now doing it with WASM as the thing we're bringing back, so that the thing that we deploy in the browser and runs natively also runs natively on the desktop. And so, like in terms of like the mobile story, there is a another universe in which what Beware is doing is not the way that we go forward. What you do is you write an application, you compile it to WASI, and you have a WASI interpreter on your phone that knows how to run this WASI binary. And it's the same binary that runs on your macOS machine, except that on macOS, it's the macOS version of the WASI interpreter. Okay. Which of these approaches is going to work? Which is going to win? I don't know. Um, like I said, I have, I have yeah. hitched my wagon, at least in principle, to getting Python everywhere and making it native on the platform you land on. Will that win? Who knows? Uh, watch this space. There's certainly a lot of interest and a lot of activity going on in the WASI space. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep seeing it and just kind of like wondering about that, you know, interconnection. And hmm. 
thanks for kind of filling me in some yeah. <laughs> on it. And in some regards, the two can actually coexist. Like, there's no reason the two can't coexist where you have, like, the the, the places where Wazzy are particularly interested is, uh, and, like, this is probably the reason why you see you hear people like Brett Cannon getting so excited, is that if you've got Visual Studio, you need to write a plugin. Right. You want that plugin to be available everywhere. And for that reason, all of the plugins for Visual Studio are essentially JavaScript plugins. But I want to write my plugin in Python because I want to have Python parses and be able to use a Python interpreter and everything. If I can compile my Python code to WASI, then it's a JavaScript plugin all of a sudden, and you can just use it on this other other platform. And like that is the the, the set of things where where WASI as an idea really shines because it's it's I want to use Python, but I don't actually care that at runtime it's Python. I just need to be able to use Python syntax to make the computer do things, and that's a, like an interesting ecosystem. Like it's absolutely a, a, a valid right now use case for for, for WASI type stuff. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a watch the space thing. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The last year has been crazy in that way. Yeah, I I, I really enjoyed the talk. I, I thought you you kind of hit some really interesting stuff, not only the idea of like, why are you doing this, you know, and kind of pushing back potentially on a client and saying, do you need an app? And what's kind of the cross purposes that you're trying to to hit here? And I, I like the idea that, you know, this, you kind of hit on a bunch of things, like the idea that you need to be able to sync your data and keep things consistent across there. And then the other one that's a big issue is the, Less an issue on the website. It's kind of the flip side of it is the versioning issue on the mobile devices. So I, I definitely like a lot of things you're hitting there. Uh, yeah, so the, pro- the problems are, like, al- although I was very much framing them in terms of an app, like a lot of them are not new problems, like v- yeah. versioning of APIs, having data consistency between your front end and your back end. Like these are not new problems. They are problems that you now have to care about a lot more because of apps but they're not new problems. And like there are existing solutions for them. And in some cases, the solutions are kind of analogs of problems that we've had elsewhere, like uh, like Cap Theorem, you know, database consistency between multiple multiple sources. Can you can you dig into that a little bit? Like I I, I heard you mention that that term and I, I'm not that familiar with Cap Theorem. Oh so so Cap Theorem is the idea, it's like it's it's one of these sort of fundamental things about databases that you can have consistency, availability, or partitioning. Okay. You can have two of them, but not all three. So you can have consistency. So the same, if you ask for a result, you get the same answer all the time. You can have availability. The data is always available no matter wherever you are. Or you can have partitioning where you've got data in source uh, in place A and data in place B, but not in both. And so the cap theorem sort of came out of NoSQL databases as there are, this, this is a constraint that exists on databases. You, you can only ever have two of these three. You can't have all three. And that is like, if you, no, the idea behind NoSQL was that you, you could just kind of throw data clusters at the cloud and your data would always be there and you could always access it and it would always scale and, you know, angels would appear in the sky and birds would sing every time you appear and all that kind of thing. The cap theorem was kind of the come down to earth of, you know, yes, you can, you can do that, but there is always a price. There is always a, a, a locking that you need to perform, or there is a lag that's going to exist, or we can't guarantee immediate consistency or things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And the set of solutions that people came up with to, 
solutions and compromises that people came up with to deal with NoSQL databases in practice effectively are microcosms of what you need when you have client-side data in an app or even you know, a single-page web app. You have What you essentially have maintained on your phone is a very small database of the same data that's on your server, and you need them to be consistent. You need to know that if I spend a dollar on my phone, that the dollar has been removed from the central bank account. Right. You need the data to be available all the time. You need to know that uh, you take a dollar off of the web off of my account on the server. That it's also going to appear on my phone as a dollar taken out of off of my account. And, and like partitioning, by definition, they need to be in two separate places to have these two to, for these things to work. So, you if you kind of treat your phone as a second node of your database that contains a partial clone of some of your data then you have to deal with the transactional locking and the updating and how do I guarantee the availability and the consistency because the partitioning is the thing that is enforced on us by by definition. And so, yeah, like it, it's, it's not a new problem. This is a known problem that has existed for a long time and there are existing bodies of knowledge around how to deal with it. What is really missing at this point is the, uh, the ORM wrapper to make it easy. Uh, like there, I, th- I think there is absolutely a space for uh, in in the beware context, in particular, as Python in web and Python on phone become more plausible, for the extension to the Django ORM or a completely new ORM that manages multiple database consistency when you don't have direct control over your other database. Uh, like, how do I hand off ownership? of a blob of data and know that you've got the ball, you've got the token, you can update it, let me know when you're done with it and manage that consistency, manage that transaction across multiple data sources. Yeah, I guess it's a very different thing because the day, you know, a certain amount of data can be held, you know, independently on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Like and, and Django has multiple database support. You know, I wrote it, so it's got multiple database support. And but the catch is that when you ask for a transaction, I can ask for a transaction and know that I've got it over all of my servers. I can't currently ask for a transaction lock on your phone, hmm. uh, so you kind of have to mock that up. And there are ways to do it, but I kind of need to treat your phone as something where I can only interact with it over an API that is potentially unreliable. And again, a class of solvable problem, there are known compromises that you can take, but someone, you know, you you need to implement it. You need to care about it in the first instance. And over time, I certainly hope that it becomes easier to manage so that as an end user, I can just say, well, I've got my user data model and I've got my bank account data model and this bank account data model is annotated as at shared and that means that it's going to be on a database and this is the locking mechanism that we're applying over these fields so that i know that only one user is updating it as as a time for example yeah we're getting close to an hour and i I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about someone's coming to beware and is interested in in this idea of like okay i'd like to create something that i can you know ship to uh, Windows users and potentially phone users. How has your getting started situation has that evolved over the last two years? I would say it has evolved. It has gotten more robust with time as more people have hit it with sticks. Okay. So, like the tutorial at this point, the tutorial is I won't say bulletproof, but it has been 
used by a lot of people and the set the classic problems we're having are getting more and more esoteric i think we've we've just recently closed out one of the more hairy ones which we discovered that windows app store python has some very interesting relationships with the home folder which we've kind of resolved now oh okay for for entirely valid reasons but they're like i'm not a windows user on a day-to-day basis and i even when i am i don't use the windows app store python so i'm not i wasn't exposed to them we've kind of now through a process of elimination and part of it has been over the last 12 months one of the things we've done is added much better debug logging support into briefcase so when something fails we now get a hundreds of pages of of logging saying this is exactly what the user did and what the state of their system was when they did it and from that we're now able to say oh oh i see the the the, the common data point here is that you're using the app store python that's what the problem is so from the perspective of, of sort of briefcase or beware and the onboarding, like first time out of the box story, the tutorial will take you from, I know how Python works and I'm broadly familiar with how to set up a virtual environment to, I have an app running on my phone with pretty much no more than just type these commands in and follow along. Yeah, nice. So it, it has gotten a lot more robust over time. It's a lot more reliable over time. The biggest impediment is that is things like if you want to deploy to Android, there is no way of getting around the fact you have to download two gigabyte of Android developer kit. Okay. We manage the download of the Android developer kit for you, but you've got to download it. And if you are stuck behind a dial-up on a, with, a, with a web proxy, you're like, yeah. Yeah, you're going to have a bad time. You're going to need to plan for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah and like, that is actually the biggest hiccup. Like when I go to, let's do this in a classroom situation. Step one, everybody download the Android developer kit. Okay. We'll come back in an hour when that's done. Um, because <laughs> yeah. 20, kids, 20, 20 students in a classroom all of a sudden downloading two gigabytes of the same file from the same source, yeah, is not, a, not the ideal classroom situation. Yeah. But, you know, running it from home on a moderate, moderately specced up internet connection, you should be able to run through the tutorial without too many hiccups. Good. Are there some some new projects out there that are using it that you want to shout out? Uh, none that I can really shout out. There are, there's a lot of a lot of people going beyond the tutorial and building their first apps. Like we get regular posts on the, the the Beware Discord of, hey, I just built this app and look, it's no, it's a thing. We are definitely interested in people who are doing you know big and fancy things uh, with Beware. The biggest impediment at the moment is actually uh, Toga. Like Toga is, it, it works, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And it's particularly, like it, it is the mobile platforms are lagging. Like there are a couple of basic navigation things that are just missing they are on our roadmap and they are the things we're going to be looking at, you know, over the next 12 months is, is getting those in place, making sure that, you know, widget layout is consistent across all platforms, making sure that you can navigate to like multiple tabs of an app. And that's just a widget you drop into your application. So the, the apps that we are seeing, like by definition, they're always going to be long tail anyway. Like the B, if, if you actually have a million dollars to build your app, you're not building your app in Beware. You're building it natively with a development team that's uh, that doing sure, stuff. Sure, sure. This is for, you know, I, I need to have a, you know, a, a, a dice bag auditing tool for my weekend Dungeons and Dragons campaign, which I've hacked together because, and, and I've proved that it can work. And those are sort of the demos that we're getting at the moment. Lots of those kind of, we've built a neat thing it solves my scratches my specific itch and it works on my phone yeah and it's with me you know and i can i can show it to somebody really me, yeah. easily yeah yeah exactly yeah, i think yeah. that's the, the coolest part of it is just the idea of 
you know, being able to share your work and, you know, a lot of the audience are obviously beginners and intermediate people that are interested in sharing the things that they're learning and, and creating. And, and the web is definitely uh, a, a popular way to do that, to be able to bring somebody else into it and not have to sit them in front of their computer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. And like, yeah, the, 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 this, this, the progression beyond this is kind of, you know, how do we, how do we smooth this even more? Like, how do I make, and this is kind of the PyScript story of how do I mean you don't have to install anything at all. You just go to a website and start building an app in the web page. How do I deploy a thing to my phone and build the app on my iPhone and then run it on my iPhone. Like, is that is that plausible? What else can I do? Do I need to do it? Can we, can we simplify the app submission story even more so that I just need to sign up at Apple for a developer uh, account and then everything else just kind of magically happens? Like, this is all very long story, long, long arc story stuff of yeah. we want to make this as smooth as possible and take out all the bumps at, you know, to the extent that we can anyway. Yeah. And I, we talked about it a little bit last time about people potentially helping on the project or getting involved. And where would you like people to, if you were addressing those people, where would you send them? Uh, so step one, do the tutorial, see if it works, see if it, see if it likes it, see what's missing. Like come, come do the tutorial and then build a thing of your own. And then when you hit a wall of this X doesn't exist, see if you can build the X. You know, do, do you need a table widget? And then, okay, put together a table widget. It is, I will absolutely, it, like the biggest issue that we have is getting people over the hurdle of I can do this at all. Because okay. when you say, you know, I, I we need contributors to help us build out WinForms. We need contributors to help us build out iOS. We need contributors to help us build out Android. That on paper, yeah, means you need to become an iOS programmer. And I won't claim that it's trivial but it's a lot easier than you think it is. Okay. There's the path in through Python makes it relatively easy to get into that stuff. You just, you do need to get over this hurdle of I can't do it. And it's a useful set of skills to have anyway. Like being like being exposed to other programming languages just generally is useful for you thinking about how you use your Python. Yeah. Because it exposes you to other ways of thinking. You know, this is... The weak sapia wolf hypothesis, but for programming languages, I guess it, it is useful to be exposed to other programming paradigms. And you know, there is a lot in Toga that you can use to crib off. How do other widgets solve the same set of problems? Can I see how button is worked and make that work for this other widget that I need to wrap? There is a lot that still needs to be done. We definitely need contributors. We are, you know, very, very enthusiastic to have contributors who come in and, and help out. Malcolm and I will be working on this full time for the foreseeable future. But yeah, we'd love to have Yeah, the project's moving much faster, right? It is now moving much faster. And like I can now guarantee that if you submit a pull request, I can pretty much review it the same day. Because I've got an eight hour day where I've got to got to work on BWare stuff. And maintaining the community is a key part of my my remit as a an employee at Anaconda. So you know, all contributions continue to be welcome. And, you know, we'd love to love to see more contributors join in. Awesome. And yeah, you mentioned a Discord on there. And I think people can find all those links at the bottom, the, the Beware yeah. pages there. That's right. Yeah, Beware. So we've got a Discord. We have a mailing list, which is mostly just kind of announcements. There's a blog, which is essentially a mirror of the mailing list. There and we've got uh, GitHub and uh, discussion forums and tickets and pull requests through there. You can yell at me through Mastodon. Beware doesn't have a Mastodon presence yet, but I, I do. 
So yeah, there are. I'm 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 around cool. and and I'm eager to talk about talk about the bees. <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying being on Mastodon. I think we mentioned that right at the be- before we even started, and and that's how I reached out to you this time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a nice community there, and uh, I don't know. My favorite thing is that when I like even make a comment now, uh, I I see feedback and stuff's happening, and that was. I never quite got to that level on Twitter. Hmm. It seemed like everything I would just say would just go into a void and <laughs> and not exist. And now it's just, you know, kind of a hellscape. So I'm excited to be on a, a different platform. So we'll definitely include that. Yeah, likewise. Did I miss anything that you wanted to hit? All contributions welcome. We've made a lot of progress and it is genuinely amazing what funding can do for open source i guess is the yeah the unsurprising but very very real now <laughs> take home yeah we've we've basically had a year and a half full-time uh, fte equivalent of progress on beware and uh, although you know when i've had a week like i've had this week where i've just been beating my head against bug after bug after bug it may not feel like it but if i go back and i look at my notes we have made a lot of progress in 12 months and the next 12 months are going to be just at, like, even bigger because the pers- uh, from the perspective of end users, it's going to look like things have been changing. Nice. Like We're actually now going to get to the point, point where the GUI widgets are going to start to get built out. We're going to start to have the native API access to hardware services and, and things like of that nature. Oh, that's fantastic. Which is, you know, that's when it starts to look like there's been progress as opposed to, yeah, I've been tinkering with iOS build systems so that Python 3.12 builds on M1. Great, but, you know, does it actually change anything for most users? Possibly not. Yeah. Are you doing any uh, conference talks uh, upcoming? I am. I will be at Everything Open in Melbourne in uh, just over a month, and then I will be speaking at uh, PyCon US as well. Oh great! I should see you there. Yes, and I we haven't had a we have applied to have a community booth, but I haven't actually had it confirmed whether we've got one or not. So uh, check your local guides for details. We may or may not have a booth, but regardless, I will definitely be there. I think Malcolm will be there as well, and other members of the Beware team will be as well. Oh great! Well, I have these weekly questions I like to ask everybody, and the first one is. What's something that you're excited about in the world of Python? The conference thing is actually the thing that's got me most excited. Uh, so for those who don't know, I live in Perth, Western Australia, which is which which likes to claim the title of the most isolated capital city in the world. <laughs> when, when the pandemic hit, that was a good thing because we just kind of put up the moat and nobody came in. Yeah. And a month after the pandemic started, the pandemic was basically over in Perth. We did not have COVID in Perth. It's, you know, we've since opened borders and people are coming in and now it's it's there, but it's like we didn't open the borders until everyone was triple vaccinated. Okay. So, but the, the downside of that is I haven't, like, I went to my first conference in three years at DjangoCon last year, which is a bit of a change from I was speaking at six, seven conferences a year. And I, I miss you all. I, I, I'm very eager to come back and see see people, actual humans. Yeah, yeah. I, I get a lot of my energy to work, continue to work on projects, continue to work on open source by getting the feedback from the other people and seeing the look in people's eyes when their app is on their phone and they can realize what they've just done. And I haven't had that for three years and I'd like it back now, please. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, what's something that you're interested in learning next? Um, so then, Again, that doesn't have to be programming yeah, specifically. No, I, I yeah. will. Uh, I'll, I actually will. T- I'll take a non-programming uh, gimme on that one. Okay. 
part one of the interesting adjustments that I've had to make as a function of uh, doing open source full time is that previously I would do open source on weekends. And that is absolutely still an option that I have. But if I do open source on the weekends, it basically means I'm working 24-7 on open source. And there is a point at which that is going to cause me to burn out. Yeah. So I very, very have to, I have to be like almost pathologically aggressive to not do open source on weekends. I don't completely keep that up but i'm very very judicious about what i pick up on weekends like it's very much stuff that's not on my critical path or it's a fun experiment that i kind of want to play around with rather than community maintenance or the thing that i was working on on friday that just i can't let go of sure so i've i've been like we uh, in in the process of the pandemic we we moved house so i've been doing a lot of home maintenance type stuff that's kind of kind of getting on top of that but i've been doing a lot of woodwork and like that kind of home crafty stuff. I'm, I'm, I, I, I actually did woodwork all the way through, like all the way through high school. Um, so I was, I was the guy who did, yeah, you know, uh, leaving top maths and physics and and English literature and woodwork. And so I'm kind of resurrecting a lot of that and relearning a lot of the skills, and that's that's been a lot of fun that I've been getting back into. Yeah. Do you have a shop then? Yeah, I have a I have a a uh, a garage with cars that I can move out of and tools that I can move into okay. place that are on wheels. I wouldn't go so far as a shop. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of mine too. I I have enough tools to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I bought this uh adaptive cut system that it basically folds up and and almost looks like a, a little you know dolly for moving furniture and you know, I can just sort of put things away. Right. But it's nice to, you know, has like a plunge saw and, and a track and stuff like that. So I can kind of do yep. some of the basics and I'm, I'm never going to buy a table saw and have to find the space for it. <laughs> yeah. I ended up buying a, a little, a little cheap table saw that possibly is a little bit too cheap. And I'm, you know, if, if, if the news comes that I can't work on open source anymore, cause I'm missing some fingers, that's why. <laughs> so yeah, but it's it's just a little thing, and I like one of the first projects was like put it on a real on a ro- rolly stand so I can push it under the rest of the bench. So um, like yeah, yeah, the eternal the all the woodwork projects you need to do so that you can do your woodwork projects. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, manage it. So how can people stay up on the things that you're doing online? Uh, so yeah, we are. Uh, Beware, Beware has a Discord, uh, which you can jump into to sort of talk to someone semi-immediately. Uh, we have, uh, we're on GitHub, uh, there's a Beware, uh, uh, GitHub slash Beware. We have an endless stream of repositories and issues and or issue trackers and pull requests and discussion forums on GitHub as well. We have the, the beware.org website, which has a blog and a newsletter that you can sign up on that website as well. Uh, any one of those or more is probably your best option. Or you can get me personally on Mastodon, uh, freakboy3742 at cloudisland.nz. And yeah, hope to see you out there. Yeah. Well, Russell, I'm looking forward to catching up hopefully in person and uh thanks for coming on the show again my absolute pleasure thanks for having me again and uh yeah i hope i'll see you all at a conference sometime soon all right and don't forget easy to start and scale companies like ibm cisco and red hat all rely heavily on influx db check out why they chose influx db get started for free today at influxdata.com i want to thank russell keith mcgee for coming on the show again And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, 
Remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.